exists again. Welcome to Super Duper Stitious. The podcast about the paranormal, the weird, and the wild. From a sciencey point of view. Where we uh bring you the stories and we break them down. And it's a good time. And uh, yeah, and you, you better damn enjoy it. <laughs> I'm Wyatt. And I'm Jake. <laughs> the We're sultry, doing some role The reversal. sultry, caramelly bass you hear to my right is Wyatt oh, yeah. Show. I'm going to talk like this the whole time. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I'm not. And I'm Jake Withy, and yes. we're going to tell you some stories today. Yes, indeed. Before um, we do that, why, what have you been up to recently? What have I been up to recently? So, last week, uh, I was at the Entomological Society of America meeting, the conference, mm-hmm. uh, over in Denver, Colorado, and it was pretty cool, very fun. And uh, I understand you gave a talk there. I did, indeed. I see you are forcing me to admit that I was given... <laughs> First place. Yes, you were in a talk uh, symposium, so that was pretty cool. What was the topic of your talk? The topic of my talk was on some of my research. Uh, it is on the costs and benefits of worker production in a bee, which only sometimes does this. So, for you folks at home, there are some bees out there that can either form a solitary nest, where mom basically lays her eggs and leaves them, or she can sometimes rear up a little worker to help herself out, and that's a pretty cool thing to see when they can do both things in one species. So I was comparing uh, the relative benefits and costs of those two strategies in that one species, and people liked it. Cool. Congratulations. Thank, thank you very much, sir. And how about you? How have you been? What have you been up to? I don't know. Oh, yeah. So this week, yeah, I had um, <laughs> a friend of mine, Whitley Purnell. Shout out to you. I'm assuming you're listening. You better be. Uh, <laughs> visit from Alabama for the weekend. Hadn't seen her in five years, so we got to oh, wow. do cool New England stuff. That's super cool. Um, I didn't win anything. I think you won friend of the year. Oh. At least that's what I heard. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, updates on the Phantom of the Chicago. The flying humanoid bat creatures mm-hmm. in Chicago. Um, this week, no new sightings of any sort. So Ooh. we're... We're just gonna. He's got stage keep, fright. Keep on the lookout and see mm-hmm. if anything new happens with uh, with that thing. That old thing. Yeah. All right. Well, that's cool. So this week we're gonna talk about conspiracies. Yes, indeed. Now and, uh, this is all coming on the heels of the um, all of, you know the JFK documents being released. That's slowly right. Surely. I've actually yet to read those myself. Same. There's a lot of them, and it's just like my thought is: well, the internet's gonna go crazy, right? And um, tear apart anything they can find, right? And so, surely, you know, whatever what the does. cool stuff comes out, we'll just hear about. <laughs> we'll take the passive approach to yeah, finding right. out what, what <laughs> happened. The trickle-down approach. Yes. So, I think I have a pretty good one for you all today, and for you, Jake. We'll um, see. Yeah. You be the judge. Um, have you heard of the Montauk Project? I have maybe heard the name, and that's it. All right. Well, this uh, happens to be a major source of inspirational material for... The Stranger Things series. I did hear that like just within the last few days, and only it only interested me because I was like, wait, I think Wyatt's doing something about the Montauk project. Yes, indeed. And and funny enough, this was suggested to me before I knew. Well, I guess actually, as it was suggested to me, it was told that it was uh, inspirational material for Stranger Things. But since then, I've seen many more articles going like. Hey, you like Stranger Things? Well, here's the story behind it. It happens to be the Montauk Project, etc., etc. Um, fun fact: the working title for Stranger Things was, in fact, Montauk. Montauk. Right there, you go. So, and probably folks at home are mouthing along with that as well. <laughs> this is not news to anyone. <laughs> but um, in order to tell you the story of the Montauk Project, I first have to tell you the story of the Philadelphia Experiment, or Project Rainbow. Mm. Um, I want to state first that a lot of the stuff that I have for everyone today, I drew from the website www.de173.com, which um, I think is the webpage of an Andrew Hockheimer who is uh, just happens to be one of those fellows very into the sort of story of the Philadelphia Experiment and I guess wrote um, a book that he didn't publish or wasn't able to publish called The Philadelphia Experiment from A to Z. And so anyway, I would just like to say thank you to him and all the work that he did in sort of aggregating all this stuff. I mean, there's there's portions of these tales all over the place online, but it's hard to find like one centralized 
spot to get the whole story. It's nice when people do the legwork for you as far exactly. as getting all the information in one place. Too. Exactly. So he really did the homework, and uh, I appreciate that. So anyway, you go to his webpage, and he'll hit you with a little thing that goes, please give me money. And, uh, you know, don't. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we love you for your work, but we don't want to reward you for all the hard effort yeah, you've you put know, in. It's America, buddy. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. Um, so, if you don't know, the Philadelphia Experiment, or Project Rainbow, was allegedly an experiment conducted on the USS Eldridge, which was a small destroyer escort ship, or DE, which is where uh, DE-173 oh, okay. comes for, from. Uh, used during World War II, and uh, the goal was to make the ship invisible to enemy detection, both on radar and optically. So the legend goes to say that the experiment was a complete success, except that the ship actually disappeared physically for a time and then returned. The story begins in June of 1943 with the USS Eldridge Destroyer Escort 173 being fitted with tons of experimental electronic equipment. Hmm. So this included, um, according to one source, two massive generators of 75 kilovolt amperes each, mounted where the forward gun turrets would have been, uh, distributing their power through four magnetic coils mounted on the deck. There were also three radio frequency transmitters, 3,000 6L6 power amplifier tubes, apparently used to drive the field coils of the two generators, um, special synchronizing and modulating circuits, and a host of other specialized hardware, which were all employed with the intention of generating an incredibly intense magnetic field around the ship, which would, in theory, cause refraction or bending of light or radar waves around the ship, much like a mirage created by heated air over a road on a summer day. Okay. I'm As still picturing, you know, it just being harder to pinpoint, but not totally invisible. I guess, yeah, exactly, right? You'd think it might scramble a piece of technology detecting the ship, but not exactly like anyone standing around. So, anyhow. Scramble the people standing around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess magnets may do something. How the fuck do they work? Magic. So, at 9 in the morning, um, on July 22nd, 1943, so the story goes, the power to the generators was turned on and the massive electromagnetic fields started to build up. A greenish fog was seen to slowly envelop the ship, concealing it from view. Then the fog itself disappeared, taking the Eldridge with it and leaving only undisturbed water where the ship had been anchored only moments before. Whoa. So, by all reported accounts, the test was a great success. Um, The ship and crew were not only radar invisible, but invisible to the eye as well. Um... And everything worked as planned. Uh, about 15 minutes later, they ordered the men to shut down the generators. The greenish fog slowly d- reappears, and the Eldridge begins to rematerialize as the fog sort of subsides after that. <clears throat> However, it became apparent to all that something, something had gone wrong. Was when the they, whole crew turned inside out? Exactly. Uh, Galaxy Quest. When they boarded, uh, when boarded by personnel from shore... The crew above deck were found to be disoriented and nauseous. The idea of such strong magnetic fields that seems like par for the course. If you're exposed to that much electromagnetic radiation, it can cause nausea and disorientation and stuff like that. So keep keep going. No, nonsense. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So Navy folks in charge decided that they only wanted radar invisibility after all. And so the equipment was altered and another test scheduled. So cut to the 28th of October of the same year. At 5.15 p.m. this time, the electromagnetic field generators were turned on again, but this time the Eldridge only became sort of partially invisible, it sounds like. It was just a faint outline of the hull that remained visible in the water. Um, Everything appeared to run well for the first few seconds, and then, in a blinding blue flash, the ship completely vanished. Wow. Within seconds, it reappeared miles away in Norfolk, Virginia, Virginia is usually how you say that, where it was seen for several minutes. Embedded in a tree. Embedded in a tree, exactly. It landed on the orphanage. Um, <laughs> the Eldridge then disappeared from Norfolk and reappeared back in Philadelphia Naval Yard. Hmm. So when folks finally made their way on board, however, most of the sailors were violently sick. Some of the crew were simply missing, never to return, while others had seemingly lost their minds. 
Strangest and perhaps most upsettingly for me, five men were found fused to the metal in the ship's structure. Oh. Folks who survived this whole event were never the same and were discharged as mentally unfit for hmm. duty, regardless of their true condition or whatever they had actually experienced. So wow. that is the tale of the Philadelphia experiment. And where do all these reports come from? So a lot of this is being channeled through essentially this one guy got these um, notes from, I think Carlos Allende was his like moniker. He just changed his actual name from something like, you know, Carl Allen or something like this. And um, so the the other guy, though, who's receiving the messages from Carl Allen is getting, like, these books with all these crazy notes scrawled throughout them. And um, the Carl Allen guy apparently was on a boat near Norfolk when he saw the ship appear. And he was, like, privy to all these experiments going on. And so he's reporting all this stuff. I believe it's pronounced Norfolk. Norfolk. (laughs) I think you're right. So, yes, it was a Carlos Allende, a.k.a. Carl Allen, um, writes a series of strange letters to one quote-unquote Dr. Morris Jessup in the 1950s. And I believe it is Jessup who sort of perpetuates the story. Uh, before I get into it too much, I want to go right into the Montauk Project tale because this cool. sets us up for that. So we can now turn to Montauk, New York. Um, which is at the eastern tip of Long Island, if you don't know, um, and is the site of the famous Montauk Point Lighthouse, first commissioned by George Washington in 1787. Hmm. And the beaches and land on which the lighthouse is located comprise Montauk Point State Park, which is a popular tourist attraction during the summer months. You ever been down there while visiting LJ and her family? No, I have not. Um, <laughs> you know, but she lives here. You don't visit her. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've never never been there, but maybe on the next trip down. That hey, would be pretty fun. Nice. So there's another site on the same park land, however, that is closed to the public, and that is the now-abandoned Montauk Point Air Force Station, Hmm. on which still stands an imposing five-story concrete radar building topped off by an enormous, I guess they call it banana peel radar antenna. <laughs> yeah, it's a goofy name, but it's sort of one of these. I can, I can. Oh, uh, I think I know what you mean. As yeah. It's like a, like a banana peel sitting flat like you would see in, in Mario Kart, for example. Um, Is that the way it's just like as far as? It's more so sort of a shoehorn shape. Almost. Oh. Uh, I, I, I'll have an image to put up, actually. Cool, okay. I can try and it right we now. We know how like. much you guys love the links we put in the bottom of the description because I can tell you always Those click Those sweet, them. sweet links. He said sarcastically. Yeah, click the goddamn yeah, links. The, the, the link shortener thing that I use lets me see how many link clicks there are, and it's a good uh, zero every time. You're going to freak our audience <laughs> out. I'm watching you click. Here we go. So there. Oh, that's, oh, the, that's totally not what I expected. Right? So that's the peel there. I see. And, of course, the large building reminds me very much of the large building in Stranger Things Mm, as well. Hawkins Lab. Hawkins Lab. We talk about the show too much on this show. We do. I know. It's true. So, let's see. This this large building is the focal point of what remains of what was once effectively a small town, if you will, run by the military on Long Island. Like a Los Alamos kind of thing? Maybe akin to that in some ways by description. Um, The whole area in fact, is said to have been artificially built up and allowed to be covered with overgrowth when operational in order to conceal a network of underground bunkers connected by possibly miles of tunnels. So perhaps very much like Los Alamos. Montauk Air Force Station, as it was called, was used to provide radar surveillance data, aircraft height determination, and Mark 10 IFF SIF identification data. Okay. Don't know what that is. And to perform radar mapping. Come on. Dude, come on. Read the manual on Mark 10 IFF SIF identification data. Um, And to perform radar mapping prior to transmitting of such data to air defense SAGE units. SAGE was something like the Atlantic Coast Guard during the. Second World War. So it was like an early alert system. Okay. This was all pretty hunky-dory until the base was declared obsolete and defunct in January of 1981 and lay abandoned, evidently, for several years Hmm. before being donated to the state of New York in 1984. 
And so the crux of this legend rests on what may or may not have happened during the three-year window. Okay. Around 1988, three men, Preston Nichols, Duncan Cameron, and Alfred Bielek, came forward to announce that they had once been brainwashed into participating in a series of mind control experiments involving exposure to peculiarly modulated microwave signals from obsolete radar equipment at the base. Hmm. This project, um, also called the Phoenix Project, was later said to have been extended to such fantastic achievements as time travel and manipulation of uh, physical reality by electronic, quote-unquote, mind amplification. Hmm. So their claim further was that these events were a continuation of, or spinoffs from, the techniques used to warp space-time, purportedly, in the Philadelphia experiment in 1943. So they're just building on what had happened before. Right. And further, uh, Duncan and Alfred both claimed to be sailors from the USS Eldridge who had jumped off the ship during (laughs) the experiment and were pulled through time to (laughs) like three or four or something like this. Yeah, right. It's the, The more you pick away at their stuff the kookier and more bullshit-tastic it It's becomes. funny, the more you talk about your thing, the more it actually folds into my thing. Oh, interesting. Which is, in a sense, more of a, in a kind of the the conspiracies that's, that spin out of mine, build off of yours, but yeah, anyway. Interesting. I kind of like that. Um, it's like we planned it, but we, we don't yeah, plan this stuff. If we don't plan this stuff. Um, so, one of the chief players in breathing life into the story was Preston Nichols who's a Long Island microwave engineer, or at least was. I'm not sure if he's still alive or not. Or still engineering microwaves. (laughs) (laughs) He will never stop. Set it to thaw. Um, (laughs) Who claimed that through hypnosis and brainwashing, he was made to live a sort of double life for the military. Hmm. So he was like a humble microwave engineer (laughs) by day. And a military scientist by night, (laughs) aiding in bizarre experiments at the supposedly derelict Montauk radar base in that 1981 to 1984 period. Hmm. He was purportedly yanked out of the program when he started to recall his involvement during the so-called normal hours of his life. So he's like, you know, breaking free or at least having glimpses of his like, oh shit, last night I was, you know, working on Demogorgon stuff. (laughs) As chief technician running the Montauk radar, he would have been the resident expert on what they were doing and how they were doing it. So yeah, Nichols claims to have used a modified version of the old Montauk radar under duress to generate an updated and expanded project very much akin to what they were achieving with the Philadelphia experiment, so they say. Hmm. And the story goes that all was sort of humming along as well as it could given a covert and sort of nefarious sounding project until August 12th, 1983 when a saboteur among the experimenters. So these were like folks kind of getting put into these weird psychological states or like getting set in what they call the Montauk chair, which was like (laughs) this sort of kooky chair device with like lots of uh, electrodes and things that would like wrap around their head and their body and allow Mm -hmm. them to perform sort of psychic feats that were amplified by all this crazy radar and electromagnetic equipment. So, you know, there were a bunch of sort of subjects in this project and it gets crazier and crazier the more you go down (laughs) the rabbit hole of these stories. I actually have left out quite a few details (laughs) to sort of um, (laughs) try to keep just a single narrative arc (laughs) because they go nuts. It's actually, I highly recommend folks if you're enjoying any aspects of this to, to read more um, into it because it is uh, it's wacky. But uh, (laughs) one of these, you know, participants well, if you can even call him a participant, because I'm pretty sure they were all purportedly under duress when this was happening. But um, a saboteur precipitated a big and hairy monster, basically, a monstrous beast, which uh, Nichols referred to as Junior. Um, I'm just from, picturing Gossamer from uh, Looney Tunes. He's, is he the big red dude? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the f- image I had, too, when I was reading about this. That's super funny. <laughs> That's exactly the image I had. <laughs> that or Sweetums from the Muppet Show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, man. 
So Edom's creeped me out when I was a kid. <laughs> There's actually a whole song and dance routine he does with another Muppet. Where... I have got you under my skin. <laughs> <laughs> Man, was it that? I feel like it was one where the there's the smaller Muppet like singing to beg for its life and he like winds up eating him. Yeah, but then, then he's That's singing. The yeah, he's oh, singing, he's inside the... He's singing to it while he's inside like peeking out of his mouth like, oh no. Oh yeah. Oh man. For some reason that creeped me out when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Same. And by that I mean I watched last week and I was crying myself to sleep. <laughs> so, right. Big hairy monstrous beast from a thought form, he calls it, right out of the ether. So I'm going to screw this all up by conjuring something. Like, not it's like, so I'll, true, not right? Not like I'm going to mess up the equipment or you know, right. just bomb the place, like which would be the, the usual go-to. <laughs> For you, maybe. Well, <laughs> no, he conjured a monster out of thin air. That he would, yeah, create some sort of horrible monster. Um, it's true, yeah, it's very extreme. Junior allegedly ran amok all over the base, Killing and eating people, and the only way the personnel could bring the ordeal to a halt was to disconnect the power to the radar. And when that didn't work, they supposedly chopped the power cables and radar waveguides with hatchets until the electromagnetic field lost its power, and the beast apparently faded back into the quote-unquote hyperspace from which it had been created. The upside down. Right. Interesting. That's so cool. I... I wish I'd known the story before because it's all like it's so much clearer where that plot came from. That's cool. It's interesting, isn't it? And so, I mean, that military base, though, is still, you know, surrounded by, you know, no trespassing signs, despite the fact that it's state property now. Hmm. And there are some sort of head scratchers that I think are kind of cool that I'd like to leave you with. Well, I'm not quite done. I have a little more to say, but... um. Regarding these main stories, two two head scratchers of a handful that I thought were particularly interesting. Alrighty. One is that the power to that main building, defunct and abandoned as it is, apparently is still on. There's still electricity being run there for some reason, even though it's completely abandoned and without use. That's really weird. So the question is why? And then the other is that the main elevator apparently in the main building appears to have at one time gone down at least one level, at least one level, I should say, that inflection instead, to a basement or other underground floor, but seems to have been concreted in so that it can no longer go any lower than the ground floor. So Mm. the sort of simple answer that occurred to me was this is simply a safety precaution for people who might be trespassing, you know. I guess that makes sense. But um, any kind of liability situation where yeah and the final one i guess i was going to give you two but no, third one that is cropping back into mind right now is that even though this property has been given over to the state uh the military has requested that the buildings not be torn down as some kind of like official do not destroy so kind of cool kind of fun yeah. little bit of mystery remains but you know now that i've sort of delivered these stories there are many many aspects to these stories that can and have been soundly debunked <laughs> i am unsurprised yeah there's... i mean if i can just give a general first take of this whole thing it sounds a lot of it sounds like the kind of stuff the military would attempt like i mean if you think of right. um there could be like a uh, kernel of truth to it yeah so if you look back at like the idea of mk ultra and stuff like that like mk ultra things people true. wove these great big conspiracy theories around these things that were done but they right. are still like weird kind of uh fringe experiments that the government did do right um attempting to do like whatever their goal was they still tried some strange stuff to get there i wouldn't be surprised if at some point someone's like hey we should try and manipulate magnetic fields to see if we can do some weird stuff Right, but I also Let's don't see how think, far it goes. Yes, yeah. I'm sure like they try a bunch of stuff, but I don't think it, anything came out of it. Like you know, conjuring a monster from the ether. Or yeah, anything. I mean, like you get to that part, and it's so crazy. Yes, and I mean, even even back with the Philadelphia experiment story, which has been made into a movie twice now, and made into really? plenty of TV shows. Yeah, and in fact, uh, apparently, some of the details that these guys i mentioned before preston nichols um duncan cameron and alfred bialik some of the details they bring forward in their stories in 1988 are drawn from or arguably could have been 
drawn from the movie. Okay. The Philadelphia Experiment, which is like just, you know, a fun Like the Mothman prophecy. Yeah, kind of a yeah thing. exactly. You know, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, they're pretty much bullshit. But their telling of tales is extremely convincing by all accounts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I dug up a YouTube recording of Alfred Bielek, who, as I mentioned before, he's one of these guys who, by his own accounting, jumped off the Eldridge during the experiment (laughs) and was launched through time. (laughs) Did he go through a chronosynclastic infundibulum? Is that what happened? Maybe. So in this recording that I'll play, I'm just going to play three minutes of it if that's all right. Yeah, of course. Um, He's (laughs) spinning one of his yarns, if you guys don't mind, um, one of his yarns about travels to the future during an interview with someone. Um, I've yet to hear the entirety of the recording, but I listened to about half of it, and uh, I gotta say, it could be used as a masterclass in just deadpan trolling, <laughs> or perhaps straight up lying. <laughs> I described it to myself. <laughs> Let me just, without any further ado. Ed Cameron's, now Al Belick's, journey through time started when he jumped off. Let me just mention, too, the interviewer here. He calls him Ed Cameron's, now Alfred Buick. Um, that's because part of one of his tales, apparently, is that when before he traveled through time in like a past life, almost he was Ed Cameron. Hmm. Off the USS Eldridge in 1943 during the Philadelphia Experiment, both he and his brother Duncan Cameron landed in the year 2137, and remember waking <laughs> up in a hospital bed. What? During that stay, Ed alone traveled to the year 2749 and spent two years there. What? In this program, Al recounts his memories of that trip. Al, can you describe what the civilization was like in the year 2749? What I saw of this civilization was a highly advanced civilization and technologically. We had floating cities, we had ground-based cities. The floating ones are anti-gravity type flotation. 2,100, 2,200 stories, like the cities are two and a half miles high. And in retrospect, I have looked at that and it says, now how the blazes, with any materials that we know in the 20th century, how could they build anything that would sustain that kind of weight from the stories above it? And, of course, it was explained to me at that time in the 28th century that it was very easy to explain because they had conquered at full control over anti-gravity and multiple systems of anti-gravity in which they built platforms of every 300 floors, approximately. And uh, they would relieve the strain of the pressure from above with an anti-gravity reverse system so that the pressure from above disappeared so that each section only had to support its own weight, and they kept adding sections as they built this city up to 2,100, 2,200 stories. And in addition, if they wanted the city to be a floating city, it was a floating city. And they would move it around from one part of the earth if we got tired of it to another part of the earth. You know, they were interested like you do. In and I told them about the system of governing, if you will, which was a totally synthetic uh, system actually in synthetic intelligence computers. They were moderately interested in that. And I said they had one in each city. Uh, whether the city was fixed, which there were fixed cities doing manufacturing and so forth, or it was a floating city. Why they had floating cities moving around, I don't know, but that was a civilization as it was then, or is to be, if you will. And I started to ask questions. I had friends there, and I stayed long enough to learn all about the functions of the city and the fact that this synthetic intelligence was a highly radioactive crystalline form structure so far as I could tell because I was called in for an interview and to be interviewed you had to put on a lead lined suit with completely radiation proof because in the room where this computer was where you were interviewed which computer if I can call it that was a huge crystalline structure floating in the middle of the room well, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, there's aspects of that where he sounds like it's not like he's making it up on the spot, and it contains a lot of different, um, fairly logical or like rational. Like he's grounded in the sense that he um, is describing these fantastical things, and then is describing himself being skeptical of how fantastical they are. Right, right, exactly. Um, but at the same, like, 
So what year was he telling this story again? During his experience or when he's recounting this to the When guy? he's recounting it. That I do not know, unfortunately. The 80s, was it, though? So sometime in the well, 80s? Well, the, the, uh, there was, uh, I guess, <laughs> they describe it as a quote-unquote, like, discovered home video of this guy and the uh, two others talking to a crowd of people as a sort of, like, seminar on their experiences from 1988. So that's when they started doing this. And, okay. I mean, they've been continuing that on since. I think uh, the... This guy we've just heard, Al uh, Bielek, um, passed away maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, so I would say probably through the 90s. Okay. I was just thinking based on his story and uh, like whenever you hear an old account of the future, try to think of you know what technology are they talking about being futuristic right. and what makes sense. And his is vague enough to kind of work, but at the same time also like it does sound like the kind of stuff that would be pretty big at that time. Like oh, you know, computers will eventually be our government. and uh, It seems more informed by what he would have experienced these days anyhow rather than a true account of right. some other experience. I think, though, there's a certain kind of uh, genius in this being such conspiracy fodder for that very reason, oh, however. Yeah. There's just enough in his story that you can go, oh, sure, you know, crystals, radioactivity... Uh, he had to wear a leather, th- uh, leather, uh, uh, lead, um, he had to wear a gimp suit. <laughs> he had to wear a gimp suit. <laughs> like there's a lot of stuff that, that sounds like it could be plausible based on what we do know. Now it's like, oh, you could extrapolate from that, that it could be something real. Right. But then like, I mean, I think like say the, the radioactive computer thing. Sorry. I didn't mean to get you with the gimp suit. <laughs> I just, uh, have this image of an old man, like crawling up to a floating, like, <laughs> crystal <laughs> oh my god in a game suit to ask it about its intelligence <laughs> um i didn't hear what you said <laughs> um i feel like if it was a radioactive thing it doesn't it would make sense for a computer in the future to be like just loose radiation just everywhere it seems yeah, so unstable right. where you, it would be contained in some way and you and even if, if it couldn't be contained then you wouldn't have to go to it to communicate with it yeah true enough that's so true. So yeah, these these weird limitations in his story that mm. seem like on the spot lies, yeah. which they are. But even with that, this video has been viewed over five million times. Oh my! And yeah, I just think that it is understandable that these stories would have been as perpetuated and um, maintained through certain circles, given just that nice balance required for conspiracy, which mm. is. Just just enough grounded, uh, tangible, plausible sort of almost facts or, you know, may as well be fact type bits of data combined with things that just would be that one time experience like, wow, you would never believe this, but, you know, I just saw this amazing bird or this crazy animal out in the woods. I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't seen it. Yeah. It just so happens to be green gas that surrounded a ship and it vanished or something like this, you know? Well, that is some pretty kooky shit. Some kooky ass shit. I like it. And, uh, the end. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so there you have it. Yes. Yeah, if we're worried about mine taking too long, I mean, I do, uh, I do talk at a particular pace. <laughs> <laughs> but I do interrupt with special grace. <laughs> Go on. Alrighty, so you were talking about stuff that was first in like the World War II era and then into the 80s. Uh, mine happens in between, and it's all solidly in the Cold War. Okay. So, my main source for this is a an article from the St. Petersburg Times, which I have uh, linked in the description, as well as um, an autopsy report, also linked there. I recommend mm-hmm. viewing that one on Chrome. Because it is all in Russian, and so you can have the option to translate. Oh, shit. Russian, huh? Yes. So, I'll just jump right into it. In 1958, Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student, decided to put together a group of 10 people for a hiking and skiing expedition into the Ural Mountains the following year. Hmm. Uh, There were eight men and two women, all in their early 20s, except for one guy who was 38. Uh, so they were hmm. all in great physical shape and were certified grade two hikers with ski tour experience. Hmm. I don't really know what that means as far as this, whatever the Soviet system was Suffice for to grading. Say they 
got outdoors a lot. Yeah, and they would be getting their grade three by completing the expedition. So that was oh, going to wow. be a test kind of thing. that They were doing the expedition for the purpose of, A, just having fun, and B, getting a higher grade of expertise. Sure. They'd be venturing onto Kolatsiakil, which is uh, probably not how it's pronounced, and which is uh, Monsi for Dead Mountain. Mm. Uh, in this case, the name most likely refers to a lack of game for hunting. Oh, dead. yeah. Not just spooky. Spooky uh, freaking name, though. The Monsi people are the local, um, the natives of that part of northern Russia. I see. So, kind of a sort first of the nation. First peoples of yeah, that yeah, the area. first nation on, on that side of uh, the Arctic. Cool. Um, the group traveled to the city of Ivdel on January 25th, 1959, mm-hmm. and then took a truck to the village of Visai, 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 I don't know, to start the trek. V I Z H A I. Visai? Vishai? Vishai? That sounds more Russian. We'll go with Vishai. Vishai. Sorry. Any Russian listeners? Actually, I think we had like one or two Russian listeners at one point, so they can correct Guys, please my entire us. story. <laughs> please do. Uh, one member of the group, Yuri Yudin, 21, bailed for health reasons at the start, and the remaining nine went on without him, starting off on January 27th. I uh, get the sense Yuri's going to be one lucky dude for not having gone on this trip. Yes. Uh, he's also one of like eight people named Yuri involved in the story. I guess it's a really common <laughs> name either at the time or just hmm. in Russia in general. Yuri. But yeah. Um, Vyatlov led the group. Uh, he's the one who put it together. He also was the leader of the trek. Okay. On January 31st, the group reached a particular mountain pass and started preparations to climb through it. They apparently planned to go through the pass and then set up camp what's on the other side. But due to a snowstorm and reduced visibility, they ended up getting off track and accidentally wandering toward the summit. Hmm. And we based this all on journals and um, photos they took. We could tell what they were doing up to each day. Like just throughout their trek, we knew where they were and what they were doing. I see. So that's how we were kind of extrapolating what they were trying to do. Right. Uh, so they accidentally wandered towards the summit of the mountain. When they realized this mistake, they decided to just set up camp right where they were. Right. Uh, this There was a forested area almost a mile below that would have offered more shelter from the storm, but they didn't go for it. Um, I mean, it's a mile down. Yeah, it's uh, so, quite a stretch. Yeah, so Yuri Yudin, the guy who had to go back because of health reasons, would later postulate that maybe Dyatlov wanted to get some mountain slope camping experience under everyone's belt since they were huh. going for a higher level of certification after all. And at this time, they don't know that something is going to happen. Sure. That, and they also... Um, to go back down the mountain a mile, maybe they didn't want to lose the altitude they had gained. Yeah, they, right. Okay, let's, let's, uh, let's just keep Tw- going Twice tomorrow. the work just to get back to where we are. Exactly. So before the group left, Dyatlov uh, had made plans to send a telegram to his sports club thing by February 12th <laughs> to let them know that the group had made it back to Vishai, or Vishai, whatever we decided on. <laughs> uh, Dyatlov had also told Yudin that they might take a little longer than that. Mm-hmm. So on, when February 12th came and went, there was no word from the group. Hmm. It wasn't a big deal, though, since they had said they might be late, and additional delays are pretty common for such expeditions. Like, you know, it's a pretty involved trek mm-hmm. up into the mountains in northern Russia, so yeah. they go, well, they're not going to be right on schedule. Right. I mean, these are level two freaking hikers, after yeah, all. Exactly. By February 20th, however, the families of the hikers demanded a search by rescuers. Just, just to keep myself like up to speed february 20th how many days have gone by since their journey began they started off on january 27th okay so, so we're talking about better part of a month shorter yeah just short of a, a whole month it's yeah. about three weeks ish right, and, right. and change so the search party would eventually grow to include the military with planes and helicopters involved like people really got like they really started, wow. once they started searching they really had to go for it right right on the 26th the camp was found abandoned and badly damaged Ooh. So let me show you a picture of the tent. This will be linked. Here's what their tent looked like. There's not much left of it. Mm. It looks like, is it like buried in snow mostly? It's kind of buried in snow, but largely it's just torn to shreds. Yeah. Oh, boy. So here's a quote from... Wind, wind could do that, perhaps. Maybe. But here's Go a on. quote from the student who found the tent. Um, the student was part of the search party. Mm-hmm. Quote, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Investigators also concluded that the tent had been torn open from the inside. Whoa. Footprints of eight or nine individuals, remember there were nine total in the group at the time, Right. Uh, variously dressed in only socks, a single shoe, or even barefoot, all led down to the wooded area about a mile below before the footprints disappeared. Huh. At the edge of the forest, the searchers found the remains of a campfire and the first two bodies, dressed only in their underwear. 
Mm-hmm. A nearby tree had branches broken up to five meters high, which would suggest that uh, possibly one of them had tried to climb up to look for something, maybe the camp. Right. Between there and the tent, three more bodies were found, pretty spaced apart, positioned as if they were try- uh, they died trying to get back to the tent. Oh, weird. And the last four bodies weren't found until May, so set, like more than two months later. Yeah. Um, buried four meters under some snow in a ravine further into the trees. Hmm. Uh, these bodies had more clothes on and even showed some signs that whoever had died first then gave up some of their clothing to the surviving members until they all died. Like, so like, they were clearly freezing to death and um, just trying to stay warm. So when someone died, like, well, he doesn't need those clothes anymore. Let me take, right, take right. that boot, take this uh, coat, and just trying to trying to keep themselves uh, warm. Yeesh. Yes. So... A um a legal inquest began mm-hmm. as soon as the first five bodies were found. Actually, before they found the last ones, a legal investigation was launched. Initially, all the hikers were marked off as having died of hypothermia. One, is that? I don't mean to interrupt, but that is sort of like a thing that happens, is it not? Like people who are starting to freeze to death, they start to feel very hot and might take their clothing off. Ironically, yes. Yeah, we will get into that a little bit later carry on. on carry on. Talk about possible explanations for the weird shit that happened. All right. Yeah. Um. So they're all. Five of them were ruled death by hypothermia. Right. One guy had a small skull fracture, but it was ruled non-lethal. So oh, the I cause see. of death was not that. It was, was he the one near the trees, too? I don't know if I... I, could, I didn't see specifically who it was in the list. I think he may have been one of the ones near the trees. All right. But I'm not positive of that. However, once the final four bodies were found, things got complicated. Hmm. Uh, three of them, three of the four, had fatal injuries. One had severe damage to his skull, and the others had badly crushed rib cages. Uh, The doctor examining the body said that the force to cause this damage would have to have been as strong as that of a car crash. Also, there were no external injuries, so it was less like trauma and more like they had been subjected to an intense pressure. Like it's, it's basically internal damage without any visible external damage. So makes me think avalanche. Interesting, you might say that. We'll <laughs> talk about that later, too. All right. <laughs> uh, additionally, one of these three, uh, Lyudmila Alexandrovna Dubinina, uh, Best one, one, of, yet. one of the two women in the group uh, was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, some facial tissue, and a fragment of her skull, and her hands were extremely pruny. So just some weird aspects mm. of what she was like when they found her buried under the snow Gruesome. There. Sounds like maybe frost damage, but carry on. I mean, she, yeah, outright missing eyes and tongue and part of her face and stuff. Not that it was, uh, yeah, it was just gone. Straight gone. Whoa, yeah. okay. Well, that is freaking creepy, man. Yes. Carry on. These deaths were ultimately chalked up as being caused by, quote, an unknown compelling force. <laughs> uh, the case was closed and the case files were sent to a secret archive where they would remain until the 1990s, at which point they were released, but with some parts missing. Hmm. Um, and the mountain pass was named in honor of the group leader Igor Dyatlov. Now it is known as Dyatlov Pass, and mm-hmm. this as the Dyatlov Pass incident. Okay. So the weirdest parts of all of this, um, there are plenty of them, mm-hmm. but the main take-homes that people really um, kind of cling on to is uh, the tent being ripped open from the inside, mm-hmm. uh, the lack of clothing on several of the dead hikers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the crushing damage on three of the nine hikers' bodies with no obvious signs on the soft tissues of external trauma. Mm-hmm. The missing body parts on uh, Dubinina. And uh, let's see, a weird dark tanning on the folks' skin. Hmm. Uh, one kid who would go on to, his name was also Yuri. I can't remember his last name. But he uh, he was 12 at the time. He would go on to start and head a foundation dedicated to figuring this shit out. Hmm. Uh, he attended five of the nine hikers' funerals and remembered there having a, quote, deep brown tan weird uh, relatives of the deceased describe their skin color as more orangish in either case not really normal not their normal skin color huh this one is really interesting high levels of radiation were found in some of the clothes whoa no source for this that i can find though aside from the article just saying it i couldn't find like a lot of these particular facts came from the actual investigation itself mm-hmm. or from the autopsy i can't find a source for the radiation claim mm-hmm so that may be just getting a little embellishment there. Mm-hmm. Strange orange spheres were spotted in the sky in the area by other hikers on the night of the incident. Mm-hmm. Uh, these hikers were about 50, uh, 50 kilometers or approximately 31 miles south and reported that the lights were somewhere to their north. So potentially up where 
Dyatlov Pass was. What, do, do they know the exact night of the incident, or would it have been during the time that they were missing, basically? It was kind of both. So the hikers claimed it was the exact night, but these same lights were seen all around the area throughout February and March of that year. Hmm. And this was corroborated by multiple witnesses independently, <clears throat> including the military and the meteorological uh, meteorological service. Weird. So people were right. just saying, hey, there's some weird orange spheres floating around in the sky up there right now. Huh. That's weird. So, what exactly happened? Right. Um, there are a bunch of different theories that oh, go I'm all sure. over the place. People, I mean, people have been wondering about this forever. There have been different uh, books and stuff about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first, uh, like, immediate theory people had was it was um, a murder committed by the Monsi people. Uh, people suggested mm-hmm. that the natives had attacked the hikers for intruding on their land. Mm-hmm. Now, the doctor who performed the autopsies, along with the investigators in general, were all quick to dismiss this as not only unlikely, but impossible based on the nature of the injuries. Hmm. Um, like the fact that there was no no sign of struggle, there was like like yeah, no defensive wounds, no right. no external trauma at all. It was all internal injuries. Right. People couldn't just do that, so that was the thing. So just some people are just dicks and want to assume the worst about native people. Right. Uh, not to mention the fact that starting around this time, oil interests in Monsi territory resulted in the Soviet government forcing assimilation into Russian culture. So hmm. just really looking for any reason to just pick on these people, which is right. shitty. That sucks. Clearly that wasn't it. There's just no reason that would even have happened. It doesn't <laughs> make any sense. Right. Uh, plus, it doesn't explain most of the weird parts of the incident. Mm-hmm. It's like the fact that they're dead is the only thing that could go with <laughs> that particular theory. Yeah, right. Um, a more fun one, people saying it was a Yeti or a Mank attack. Mank. A Mank is the Monsi name for a creature known as the Forest Giant. Huh. Uh, which basically sounds like it's the same as a Yeti. Yeti, right. Yeah. The main premise here is that the injuries on three the th- um, three of the four party members found in the ravine were severe enough that some sort of superhuman strength would have to have been required to cause them. Mm-hmm. That something unnatural or unexpected would account for the general mayhem that mm-hmm. was at the scene. So, like, you know, if a... If a Yeti showed up, they'd all be freaking out, trying to, like, you know... Get away. Them, yeah, get out of the tent and running around. Right. Various states of undress because they were asleep or whatever. Right. And then, yeah, getting killed by but a Yeti. why turn back around and seem like they're running back towards the camp? Yeah, if, I mean, if we assume that the people who were killed by the Yeti the one, were the ones with the crushing damage and they were down in the ravine... Right. That's in the... Like, they'd be maybe heading back in the opposite direction towards the camp again away because if i'm not supplies if, or something if i have it clear there were the bodies in the ravine in the wood mm-hmm. two on the edge of the woods mm-hmm. and then three or four more on the way back towards the camp yes and the camp was about a mile away from the woods yes that's crazy yeah that's a long way to that's I a mean, really long way yeah a long way to go and like particularly I think, like barefoot in snow i'm guessing yeah, was it snowy? It was, oh yeah, plenty of snow. I yeah. Mean, this was in February in northern Russia. Wow. So, very, very cold. Man. Yeah, so that's the cryptozoological explanation. Sure. Uh, the bigger, <laughs> like, one very popular one is aliens. Right. Mostly people latching onto the idea of those weird spheres of in course. the sky. That also helps to account, well, <laughs> helps to account, <laughs> you know, if we buy that, it maybe can be used to explain the weird skin discoloration and the radiation yes i'm guessing exactly uh that and also some fun things that this was all like once the case was closed it was filed away in a secret secret archive and kept secret there until the 90s hmm. uh the head police investigator who led the inquest lef ivanov came forward in 1990 saying that he and his team really hadn't found any rational explanation for what had happened Mm-hmm. They, um, I mean, they had to close the case, but they, they hadn't really figured it out. Right. Uh, he also said that after his team reported also seeing the flying spheres, uh, he received orders from high-ranking regional officials that he should shut up about that part. Oh. Like, they um, they say, yeah, don't report on that. Just mm-hmm. dismiss that part. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, yeah, one of the officials who were one of the investigators coming forward, the lead investigator, in fact, saying, oh, we found some weird stuff and we were told not to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then as far as the radiation on the clothing, that's another thing that's attributed to the aliens theory. Um, some recountings even say that the radiation was found inside the corpses. Like there were traces of radiation inside them. Huh. Just like the clothing, I can't find an actual source for that. So no real way to say what that is. Right. And then the skin discoloration could also be said to be something to do with radiation or just like some... Yeah, like you said, Exposure. It, it, fits, it fits in with with this theory. It could be used as a clue or a 
like evidence supporting the theory. Right. Another one that's um, pretty... I think Aliens and this one are the most popular ones. Mm-hmm. Secret Soviet weapon experiment. Uh-huh. Kind of secret technology, maybe, even. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the party was accidentally in the way of some sort of weapons test, and their deaths were subsequently covered up. The police investigator having to hush up could fit in here as well. Right. As could the radiation supposedly found on the clothing slash bodies. And so whether or not it's the idea of just like some kind of weapons test in general that went wrong or some kind of new secret uh, technology they're testing and trying to keep secret. Right. So many weird things happened during the Cold War. A lot of these conspiracies are Cold War time. Mm. Like yours happens all well with mm-hmm. the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I find fun about that is so many of these kind of things, people think, oh, the government's up to some kind of crazy, crazy stuff. In some cases, my opinion is that I don't usually think this stuff actually happened. I think something is happening. Yeah, definitely some kind of um, stuff being kept secret because we're trying to we're trying to get the one up on those Soviets. Yeah, right. And it makes sense that people start saying, "Oh, yeah, aliens landed in Roswell." You can say, "Sure, believe that if you want. Just run with that. We'll uh, we'll let you." And it, <laughs> it totally gets people off the trail of accidentally uncovering an it's important so state true. secret. That's that's a really good so point. So the same thing could be true here for the Soviets as well. Like, right, they were doing something. There was uh, a lot yeah, of, um, it was the aliens. Uh... So there were actually like um, parachute mine tests they had been doing. Ooh. Like, yeah, which, um, and I guess apparently the kind of, they can explode before they hit the ground or they can explode mm-hmm. on the ground, cause similar damage to what was seen there, including causing that kind of uh, blunt force trauma without any exter- um, exterior wounds. Weird. So possibly that kind of thing could have happened. Uh, Still. There was, yeah, there was a 2013 found footage horror movie called Devil's Pass huh. uh, that really was all about this. It was uh, some goofy shit. Uh, supposedly, the, <laughs> supposedly there were 11 bodies, not nine. The other Whoa. two bodies, quote, had something wrong with them. Ooh. Some, uh, the whole premise is that some American students go there to shoot a documentary and find out what really oh, happened. Oh, I see. <laughs> so uh, it turns out that the other two bodies weren't really dead and had become teleporting ghouls of some kind that also maybe <laughs> time-traveled. Like they had gone through some it kind was of ex- junior, uh, yeah, basically. And so in this case, like they uh, in they go they find this bunker there, and like there's mm-hmm. um, apparently some footage of the of the Philadelphia experiment. Hmm. And so like the idea is, oh, maybe the Soviets are trying to recreate it, and right. something went wrong, and the teleportation thing went wrong, and the people who went through became these mutated monsters. Mm-hmm. So it's just uh, some other additional goofy explanation. Now, I'm not trying to say that uh, this movie by any means reflects a belief held by anybody. Sure. But it does illustrate how fanciful people get with the story in Absolutely. general. As far as just trying, especially in this case, trying to fold in additional ins- conspiracy theories just, into it. Yeah, stuff. It's, it's like tantalizing, uh, though, when something like this happens. Your oh, mind certainly. just goes haywire with things. All the different possibilities. Right. Like what, and like um, Yuri, uh, Yuri the First... There actually, I say huh. there are a lot of people named Yuri. There are three people in the ten-person expedition named Yuri. Wow. Um, and Yuri Yudin was the one who uh, Yuri Yudin, yeah, who, who turned back. He lived to be, I think, seventy-five. He died in twenty thirteen. Hey, good for him. Thereabouts. But he kept saying, if he could wish for one thing, it would just he just wanted to know what happened to his friends. Oh, of course, like, what right? Really happened that? God, can that you night. imagine? Yeah, just like being like not only having all your friends die like that, but been thinking, what the hell actually happened? Yeah, exactly. To them? You could never have closure. That would yeah. haunt me for, like, my life. Yeah. So oh what are some possible, like, explanations for what really happened? Um, right. You touched on a couple of a couple of the leading ones that I most latch on to. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is the idea of hypothermia. Mm-hmm. Um, they died of hypothermia. And uh, one of the symptoms of hypothermia is something called paradoxical undressing. Mm-hmm. This is feeling overheated while actually freezing. Uh, so the colder you get... After a certain point, nearing the end stages of hypothermia, the blood starts to leave your extremities to protect your vital organs. Like, it all just starts to kind of accumulate in your torso Mm. to preserve as much heat there as possible to keep Mm -hmm. you from dying as long as possible. As a result, you start to feel like you're getting warm again. And um, it can be extreme enough to feel make you feel like you're actually just, like, burning up. Mm -hmm. So people have been found dead with most or all of their clothes torn off Mm -hmm. because they started to feel like they're getting way too hot when, in fact, they were freezing to death. So um, spooky. Like also, like, part of it's what's called, I think, um, terminal tunneling, hmm. where people will start to, like, kind of, like, crawl on their hands and knees and just find some tight space to crawl into. Sort of like it's mm-hmm. a weird reflexive body protective thing. Just uh, That's, like, the very last stage. You die crawling into a little tight space. Mm-hmm. It's really creepy, but mostly sad. Yeah, it is. It is. And uh, so that could 
easily explain the fact these people were all largely undressed when they're found dead in the snow. Right. That was the first thing that came to mind for me. Yeah. And then not all of them were like that because some of them were found trying to put on additional clothes uh, from each Mm -hmm. other. So like they weren't all suffering from that same thing. As far as the avalanche theory, I had like I was actually 100% bought into the avalanche theory until mm-hmm. until this. And then there's actually a number of interesting counter arguments too. So facts in favor of an avalanche having caused all this: uh, the tent was destroyed, which could they could have tried to escape from the inside to avoid being buried. Mm-hmm. Could be why it was ripped open from the inside. Um, it would definitely have led to hypothermia. Mm-hmm. The first five members of the party dying that way could have had sufficient force to cause the internal injuries involved without causing visible external injuries. Right. And those bodies that had that force applied to them were also buried in snow. Right. And they're on a friggin' mountain during a storm, so that could cause an avalanche. That'll do it, yeah, true, true. There are some arguments against that, though, some facts. So why were only some of the bodies buried? Was it right. a very selective avalanche that yeah. chased some of them? Also, how um, do you outrun an avalanche over the course of a mile? Yeah, a mile down. Right. And so how the... How would the avalanche take out their tent, <laughs> not bury everyone in between there and a mile below, and then bury the people a mile below? It's hmm. just it's weirdly selective as far as that part. I do have a potential answer. Go for it. Which is that you escape the tent, caveat being that you're getting away from the avalanche at all in the first place, because hmm. a lot of the time, from what I've heard, you hear the bang or you hear the rumble, and it's almost already too late. Like Unless yeah. you're already at speed, you're just like, oh, oop. It either hit me or it didn't, thank God, or damn. But say they were already away from the tent, maybe Avalanche comes down, hits the folks who are at the bottom, the others are just avoided somehow and trying to make their way back in a heavy storm just to come on the way back to the tent. That makes sense, yeah. But it doesn't explain why everyone seems to have left the t- They saw the tracks, right, leaving the tent? Yes, so that doesn't explain that, because clearly they would have left after the avalanche came through if the avalanche is what destroyed the tent in the first place. Yeah. I mean, one possibility is that maybe because the people who were buried didn't seem to be all undressed, that they were the ones who were actually trying to put on clothes and stuff. Yeah. So like, it could be that they had scouted down below to check out something while the others were in the tent, oh, and then true. something went wrong and true, everyone true, left true. the tent. That doesn't explain what happened to the people in the tent. But it might explain the differences between... I don't know. Yeah, no, that's um, a good point. And then maybe they got buried by the avalanche. I don't know. Maybe everyone freaked out and ran out when they heard the avalanche. Just see, oh, no, our friends are down there. Mm-hmm. But why would they have left without any... Shoes or anything. Yeah, because their shoes were left behind. So All right. weird, weird stuff there. Even more damning evidence for the avalanche is that uh, avalanches were not frequent on that part of the mountain or even mm. at that time of year. Uh-huh. And none had ever been reported up there. Uh-huh. There have been many, many expeditions in the area, and no one had ever encountered any kind of avalanche. And the time of year when it would normally happen would be much later on as a result of melting snow and stuff. To right, things right. Up. So, it did, so we'll say it's not an avalanche. It seems, probably. yeah. So then uh, the last the last thing, too, was something that uh, Yudin would say. But his friends, like, you know, this group knew what they were doing too well to be likely to accidentally set up camp in the possible path of an avalanche. Not only were they all hikers, but they were all practiced skiers. Mm-hmm. And so they would know what to look for, saying, okay, this kind of mountain face could create avalanches. We don't want to camp right there. Right, right. So they should be too smart for that. It doesn't make sense that that's how they would have died. Right. Uh, another theory I hadn't heard before that's kind of fun is infrasound, hmm. which just seems to pop up all the time. So yeah. <laughs> infrasound is sound at frequencies below the normal human level of hearing, mm-hmm. and it causes all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, so wind rushing over the mountaintop into the pass could have formed what's called a Carmon Vortex Street, which I'll show you a picture of. I'll post a picture. <laughs> I've it's, been there before. <laughs> yeah. It's when fluid moving past a blunt object forms a repeating pattern of vortices behind it. And it looks mm. like that. Hmm. So it creates a series of vortices behind the object that the fluid is passing over. Interesting. And so you can just create a pattern of whatever. In this case, it's like some kind of smoke or something in, in air. Maybe it's something, some kind of dye in water. I'm not sure. Right, right. It just creates a disturbance that is a repeating pattern. And so uh, wind rushing over the mountaintop could have caused that, a repeating pattern of just really low-frequency sound. Whoa. So infrasound, which we've mentioned in passing, and we'll definitely return to again and again, I'm sure, especially when we talk more and more about ghosts. Yeah, true. Uh, it can cause all sorts of feelings of uneasiness and even panic. Right. It can cause um, hallucinations. It can cause all kinds of crazy stuff. Hmm. And so 
The group may have just like been exposed to this infrasound for a while, freaked out, rushed out of the tent by any means necessary, so maybe right. torn their way out of the tent, and run down the mountain. And then once they got down the mountain, you know, it's about a mile down there, they would have been out of the range of the infrasound, could have regained their senses, and then died trying to get back up there again. Right, right. So that's one possibility. Uh, then four of the members likely just fell accidentally into the ravine and sustained their injuries as a result of the fall. Uh-huh. Um, I think right. whatever the explanation, I do think that the injuries were from falling into the ravine. Yeah. It seems like it makes the most that sense. That makes sense. Because then you but don't have again, to worry about, you know, some rogue avalanche killing only them and causing right. the injuries. It's like, okay, they everyone was freaking out running down there. Some of them fell into the ravine and died. The falling into the ravine and dying suggests nighttime to me, too. Yeah. That so many would fall in. Yeah, four of them out of nine. It all seems to probably have happened at nighttime, but there's no way to know because it was, I mean, well afterward that they found what had happened to them. Right. I mean, but as far as them, I mean, if they were planning on camping out and then leaving the very next day, right? Um, they would have already moved on. So, And all their stuff still being in the tent. Seems like they camped out and then died not long after having, to, having started camping out. So spooky. Mm. What a horrifying night. Yeah. Oh, my God. It started as a kind of annoying night. Like, oh, man, we took a wrong turn yeah. in the storm. Like, all right, let's uh-huh. camp out. We'll finish in the morning. Right. And then just everything Absolute horrible happens. Bedlam. And so one last possible explanation was the idea of maybe it was some sort of military testing. Like I mentioned, the idea of parachute mm-hmm. mines. Mm-hmm. It would explain the idea that there was some sort of cover-up-ish nature to it, like the idea of the files all uh, from the investigation all be being stored in a secret vault and not being released until the 90s that's so true with uh, redacted information too yes or at I least or not redacted but just like not all of it released like some parts of it were just missing right and the 90s are a pretty interesting time to release it because that's just after the fall of the berlin wall and, the, and the soviet union just crumbling so it's like okay well the, the war is over guess there's no need to cover any of this stuff up anymore. We're not really protecting any state secrets anymore. There's no state to protect. Right, right. So, so if they were just testing stuff up there, accidentally killing civilians isn't great PR, so it mm-hmm. makes sense to try and cover that up. Mm-hmm. Whether or not the weapons they're testing were some kind of military secret they wanted to hide or whether it was just something that went wrong by accident and it was a time when whether um, the U.S. or the Soviets accidentally killed some civilians doing a military test, they would probably want to hide it because it would be just further fuel for the other side. Right. Like, oh, look what they're doing. What They're just such callous idiots. Like, can you believe this? Um, even if it is an honest mistake um, right. in a very remote part of the Ural Mountains, um, or however you say that. <laughs> and then one of the weirdest parts people were really freaked out by was the, uh, mm. that also fed into the alien theory, like, you know, the uh, you know, abductions and probing and stuff. The missing body parts from the Yeah, Bermuda. I almost forgot about that. Yeah. The coroner's report actually said that she was found lying face down in a stream that flowed underneath the snow. Huh. And so the fact that her face was like she was face down in the in the water mm-hmm. under the snow, like her hands being all pruny would be, you know, the result of just being in the stream and stuff. This is weird. Like the beginnings of um, decomposition in the water. Right. The rest of everyone's bodies were all just frozen solid. So they right. were preserved. And then all the soft tissues from her face and head that like, missing, like the tongue, the eyes. That's the kind of stuff that scavengers will be the first to take sure. to go for because right. they're easy to get at. Now, granted, there's supposed to be not much game on the mountain there, but like you know, this any kind of like it doesn't have to be anything big like, or or whatever. Any kind no, of big certainly not. Scavenger to take right. to start try eating over the course of a couple of months, they had to get at that tissue and stuff. That's like, true. Laying there That's for true. a couple of months, and then like the weird discoloration on everyone's skin. That was only reported, like I said, the family members have said said that about them um, being kind of orangish. That one guy saying it was they were kind of just like a weird brownish color. Right. He had attended five of the funerals. Now, again, I couldn't find the specifics about this, but I have to assume that means the first five who were found, he went to their funerals. Mm-hmm. Because why would you pick a random five out of the nine if it yeah. were the first five who were found? And then two months later, there are four more. Right. Right. Those five were all just exposed to the elements for weeks before they were found. True. And so being exposed to the sun, sun exactly. at such a high altitude, exactly. being exposed to the wind and stuff, it's the normal results of cold mummification. That's what it made me think of, too, when you first described them. It was like, oh, yeah, that sounds like what they find when they see bodies on the mountainside. Yes. You know, in cold environments, in sun-exposed environments. Absolutely. So, so it sounds like... The majority of it has been explained. It's still there's no way to know for sure exactly what happened. It's still very mysterious. It actually um, it made me think as you're going through the story initially, a uh, very fun uh, bit of folklore of the Wendigo 
or Wendigo, mm, yeah. depending on how you want to pronounce it. And also, depending on the reading, it's either sort of an evil spirit that is sort of in the cold wood, or it is a kind of madness or possession by evil spirit. Which I heard, my um, understanding was that it comes from, um, it's a it's a Native American yes, legend, right? And yes. it, the version I knew was if you eat human flesh, you become a Wendigo. Right. That's that's exactly but i've i've heard tellings too where like for instance a, a sort of like you know frontiersman hires a native guide mm. to take him out into you know to find game they get snowed into their camp and then during the night the guide starts to complain about his feet being really hot and mm. everything's burning up so hot so hot like i have to get out you know i'm on fire and he races off into the night screaming about it and the hunter the like frontiersman is too freaked out to like chase him yeah because it's like a bad blizzard at this point in the morning everything's calmed down but he sees the tracks leading away from camp and he follows the footprints and the guy apparently had been running and running and running and the uh tracks get longer and deeper and then longer still and shallower and then shallower and then they're just gone Wow. And he never knows exactly what happens to the guy, but he recalls at the end of the story how he'd heard tell of the Wendigo, which will come and take you in the night and like magic you away basically by Mm. driving you mad or something like this. And so anyhow, the fact that the tent would have been exploded, that everyone would have run away in bare feet and all this. Yeah. And then you find them all dead. I was just like, oh, it's <laughs> happening for real. Hit <laughs> like eight of them or whatever. <laughs> very, very creepy. Yeah. <laughs> so that was good. Cool. So there's some fun conspiracies for you from you the mid 20th century. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's uh, no shortage of them out there. So, uh, no, indeed. If you have your own conspiracy theory that's your favorite or any kind of spooky story you'd like to share, feel free to uh, send them to us via contact at superduperstitious.com or you can go to superduperstitious.com and go to the contact form there yes please yeah please uh if you have anything in mind that you'd like to hear us talk about or address or just like mention or make fun of we're we're all ears it'd be really yeah you can also cool tweet to hear us, from you guys tweet us at superduperstitch um <laughs> and by all means if you feel that you enjoy this enough that you want to leave a review and a uh a rating on Hello. iTunes or Apple Podcasts. The artist formerly known as iTunes. Yes. <laughs> helps us get get found. Get some uh get some spread, some traction mm-hmm. out there in them digital pipes. But yeah, thanks cool. so much for joining Thank us you very for much. this little adventure into weirdness. And, and uh, yeah, we'll see you guys same time, same place next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.